Pete Blaber had command at every level of one of the most elite counter-terrorist organizations in the world, the U.S. Army First Special Forces Operational Detachment, Delta. His time with the unit included most of recent history's significant military and political events. Panama, Colombia, Somalia, Bosnia, Afghanistan, and Iraq. In 2006, Pete retired from the military and transitioned from leading elite combat teams around the globe to leading elite corporate teams for one of the world's largest and most innovative biotechnology companies. Pete's first book, The Mission, The Men, and Me, Lessons from a Former Delta Force Commander, is one of the most widely read books among tactical units and is required reading in many tactical leadership programs. His second book, The Common Sense Way, A New Way to Think About Leading and Organizing, builds on the legacy of the first book, providing specific and concrete guidance on how to implement common sense into your leadership style. His third and most recent book, Common Sense Leadership Matters, Toxic Leadership Destroys, is a case study of the death of Patrick Tillman, looking at how toxic leadership led to Tillman's death at the hands of friendly fire. Pete has an MBA and an MS in National Security Studies and Strategic Affairs. I'm excited to speak to Pete, not only because he commanded one of the most elite combat units in the world, but because he's a deep thinker on the topic of leadership and has spent a great deal of time thinking about the way we lead and how we can improve it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Pete Blaber. My name is John Becker. For the past four decades, I've dedicated my life to protecting tactical operators. During this time, I've worked with many of the world's top law enforcement and military units. As a result, I've had the privilege of working with the amazing leaders who take teams into the world's most dangerous situations. The goal of this podcast is to share their stories in hopes of making us all better leaders, better thinkers, and better people. Welcome to The Debrief. Pete, thanks so much for being here, man. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me. Great to be here, John. Why don't we just for the the uninformed or or unaware, let's let's go through just kind of a quick bio with you and talk about, you know, y- your career arc that that led you to to where you are now. Sure. Um, born and raised in Oak Park, Illinois. Um, middle kid of nine kids. Uh, had a great upbringing. Uh, played sports. Um, you know all the things that uh, make America great. Uh, you know, are, are part of my upbringing and why I was so appreciative of it. Um, I uh, went to college, Southern Illinois University. Didn't really know much of anything about uh, the military, but you know, my my life experiences were steering me that way without a doubt. Uh, I chose Southern Illinois University because it was surrounded by a 275,000 acre national forest. And, um, you know, my, most of the time, instead of doing homework, I was out hiking around in the woods, learning how to navigate, uh, you know, learning how to read terrain. And, um, 
you know, when I, uh, while I was there in my, I think my first year, um, the Iran hostage rescue uh, mission had gone awry and that had a big effect on me. It was like the first time as a, as a kid that I began to reflect on, on how good I had it. And, um, you know, all the freedoms that you kind of take it for granted as a kid, um, that incident made me realize, you know, how amazing this country is, how amazing, um, it is to be, have the privilege of growing up here. And, um, you know, I was a cross country runner and uh, triathlete at the time. I'd go on long runs thinking about it. And it was on, you know, those runs that I realized uh, I need to pay something back to this country. And that's what set me on a path to join the military. Um, I didn't know anything about the military other than, you know, just what I heard in the movies and things like that. My, uh, my dad did two years uh, during the Korean War, but he was not, you know, he was drafted and um, just did something in Maryland, uh, wasn't in Korea. But so he wasn't a military guy. He, you know, he didn't, didn't know much about the military himself. Uh, so, you know, I, uh, I just started going to recruiters and trying to find someone who would give me what I wanted. And, uh, you know, I knew from studying the Iran hostage rescue mission that uh, what unit did that. It was, you know, it was Delta Force. And uh, I wanted to be I wanted to be a member of that, you know, that unit uh, because I really not not just because I thought it was cool, but I I was very frustrated about what happened. You know, they were doing investigations and um, for those that don't know it, you know, they were refueling in the desert and uh, a helicopter landed on top of a plane and uh, both blew up and eight guys died out there. So, you know, for me, it was kind of like, how could this have happened? Um, how could we have let it happen? And I really just wanted to, you know, be uh, in the thick of it so that it would never happen again. And I, I joined the military through OCS. Uh, it was called Infantry OCS, and OCS was taught at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, the home of the infantry. And, um, you know, while I was there, I picked the brains of prior enlisted guys, whatnot, to find out how to, you know, get to the unit and how to get. Uh, and, they, and they told me that the way to get to unit is go to Rangers. I, of course, love the Rangers, too. They were also at Desert One. And so, uh, you know, the only way you could go to the Rangers, uh, I learned, was to go to Korea first. So my first tour was in Korea on the DMZ. I came back from there, got, uh, was fortunate to get accepted into the regiment, went to 2nd Ranger Battalion at Fort Lewis, Washington. Um, and I was a lieutenant there. I was there for four years. Um, and... You know, the significance of that, which I talk about in the in the third book, is that that period um, was a defining period of, of for me uh, with regards to leadership. It's where I learned what a leadership climate is. Um, and a, lead, a leadership climate is simply uh, the sum based on the sum total of choices made by all the leaders in the climate system. So, you know, uh, climates are not just made by one senior leader. They're made by all the leaders. Uh, it's not, 
any one thing. It's a whole bunch of things. And, uh, you know, a healthy climate uh, is created based on those choices that are made. They're positive choices made by all the leaders. Um, and, you know, my, my definition of, uh, you know, what a leader should do came from there too. It's just make good decisions and solve complex problems that set the conditions for your people to succeed. And that's what they did. Um, my, I had two great battalion commanders there. Um, my second one was, uh, you know, uh, the one who basically uh, defined my whole career. He was a fantastic leader, uh, totally approachable. He would talk to uh, private the same way he would talk to a general. Um, a, any lieutenant could come up and ask him a question and he'd give him an answer. And, uh, you know, not just a straight, uh, you know, a straight laced answer. He always added humor and, uh, and a couple of uh, shots of wisdom, uh, every time he talked to you, it was like, he knew, you know, his job was more than just battalion commander. He knew his job was, uh, to teach future leaders how to be leaders. And the way you do that is by modeling, uh, good behaviors and, and back to what I talked about making good decisions. So, um, you know, from there, I uh, went, commanded a company in a uh, light infantry company in Fort Ord, California. It was during the invasion of Panama. It was a fantastic uh, company, 130 guys. Um, we were very successful down there. And uh, the criteria to get into the unit is for an officer, you have to have a successful company command. So when I was about two months from the end of my command, uh, which is, you know, all commands are about two years in the military. Um, I started applying for the unit. I, uh, again, very fortunate, uh, you know, I was accepted, um, went to selection in uh, 1991 and uh, again, didn't get injured, was fortunate, made it through selection. And uh, I was in the unit starting in 1991 um, and, uh, I stayed there, uh, with, uh, the exception of, a about an 18 month period, I returned to second ranger battalion in the infantry to be a S3, a major slash operations officer. And, you know, I did that because another senior leader told me, Hey, you know, uh, you don't have to go back there, but, uh, you know, in the same way you joined the military, military to pay something back. Uh, it's kind of, uh, you know, a way you can pay back uh, the Rangers by going back there and bringing some of your new training back there uh, and doing the same thing um, my, my battalion commander did, model uh, leadership behaviors, model common sense leadership. Um, and, of course, I loved Rangers. I loved the Ranger Regiment. I loved Fort Lewis, Washington. So... Uh, going back there to second battalion was uh, was a joy. I totally enjoyed it um, for two years, and then I went back uh, to the unit where I uh, served out my career till uh, 2006. So you're you're a lieutenant and a captain at the unit, then transfer out when you make major, and then come back as a major and lieutenant colonel. Yeah, uh, I was a captain 
when I got to the unit, uh, senior captain, you, most guys, usually you're a major, but because I got command so quick, um, you know, I didn't have to be a staff officer before command. So I got there quicker than most people. And, uh, yeah, I was a senior captain by the time I got to the unit, uh, pinned on major, you know, a few months after that and, uh, stayed there all the way until I was a full colonel. And when I so went you retired back as a, as a full colonel. Yeah. When I went back to second ranger battalion, I was, I was still a major. Got it. Okay. So, so, I mean, you're there, you're, you're in the unit in some of the most tumultuous times, uh, maybe in American military history, right? From basically 95 to 06, is that? 91. 91 to 06 with two years out in the, in the Ranger uh, regiment. I mean, that's, that's Panama, that's Bosnia, that's Afghanistan, Iraq. I mean, it's, it's kind of everything up to and including 9-11, right? Yeah. It was very fortunate. Um, you know, I'd been to Panama with, uh, my company, my light infantry company. And then right when I got in the unit, um, 91, 92, uh, I think that's when Pablo Escobar escaped from prison. And, uh, we, uh, a small team of us went down to help assist the Colombians in the embassy, uh, with the situation. Colombia was a mess at the time. Uh, but it was, Again, an incredibly formidable or formable, uh, uh, you know, experience for me. I learned uh, first, I, I worked out of the embassy part of the time. So, you know, wearing a suit, dealing with the uh, Department of State, the CIA, the DEA, um, and of course, the big military, um, you know, that uh, has a mill group commander and all kinds of other uh, conventional military uh, goals and, uh, and programs going on. But, you know, uh, it was like nothing else. It was, you know, there was no, uh, there was no DA PAM or no doctrine for, uh, you know, uh, counter narcotics warfare. Um, if you want to call it that. And, you know, at the time, uh, you could easily call, um, you know, uh, you could easily say that it was terrorism, call, you know, narco-trafficking terrorism. But it wasn't because, uh, you know, that whole narcotics thing meshes in with the people. You know, you got, uh, they grow, uh, you know, cocaine down there, coca plants, and people grow those for their livelihood. Um, but, it, you know, you also have to be very careful um, in a situation like that to always be comfortable being in the background. Um, and we, we were very comfortable with that. We did not want to, you know, there was no, uh, no need to try to hold us back from doing the job we wanted the, the Colombians to do. Uh, the force we worked with was their HRT or Agrupacion. And they were, they were competent guys, uh, but they were the guys that needed to do uh, whatever needed to be done down there. Um, you know, the real, the real, uh, foundational lesson for me was how important interagency unity of effort is. Um, you know, the ambassador called us down there because, uh, he wanted like a neutral 
group to advise him. Uh, the DEA and the CIA were, you know, at war with each other as much as they were with the narco traffickers. And, you know, I would go on in my career to see that all over the place in many different embassies. It's kind of a natural byproduct of, uh, you know, competing for missions, competing for dollars. Uh, but, you know, a lot of it is also competing for credit um, because those drive, you know, their budgets, those drive their reputation. And, you know, I, I had a bunch of senior uh, guys with me when I was down there. I was probably one of the more junior and those senior NCOs, especially, you know, taught me a big part of the unit culture, which is uh, we don't care who gets credit for anything. And we certainly don't care about credit for ourselves. We prefer to, you know, never get the, you know, external uh, credit, let that go to someone else. Uh, all that matters is that we know, you know, we, uh, we did what we needed to do and we accomplished our purpose. And uh, like I said, uh, you know, I spent an unbelievable amount of time like um, refereeing between different agencies, trying to get consensus on things, uh, you know, uh, as we searched for Pablo and his, uh, his lieutenants. There were a lot of, uh, you know, small missions uh, and small operations that had to be uh, uh, executed, but they had to be approved first. And, uh, you know, here I was a, a senior captain, you know, going around from agency to agency saying, hey, what do you, what do you want to do? What and what's your thoughts on this? And what do you think about this? Um, and, you know, really. Uh, just spreading logic, uh, you know, facts and not ever allowing, you know, myself or me and my guys to to be partisan in any way, to take sides between these agencies. We were just always about the mission. And, um, you know, all the successes down there, I think, inevitably were due to that. Uh, but again, you know, uh, if your behavior doesn't change. It means you didn't learn a thing. And it changed me from that day forward. I was in many other embassies all the way throughout my career, similar dynamics. And, you know, you'd see the same thing over and over again. Uh, and, you know, I felt like we had a role in a lot of those situations uh, to be that referee, to be that, uh, you know, that mitigator, uh, someone trying to find common ground between the group to do the right thing and, you know, accomplish the overall purpose. So it was a great, great mission there. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, I went left, right from uh, Colombia, uh, went to Somalia, and uh, we were the second element into Somalia. I got there the night of the firefight. So we were actually taken over for the guys on the ground, I think you had Tom Satterley on here a while back. Yep. So he was in C, I was in A, and uh, we were supposed to swap out for them. That was going to be the changeover day. Uh, and what happened, uh, you know, they obviously, you heard from him how devastating that, that was and, you know, uh, took a pretty significant toll in uh, injuries and death on uh, all the forces that were on the ground. So we took right over 
started flying missions to rescue uh, Durant. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was in my first two years in the unit right there. That's a pretty eventful couple of years. And I guess you're there, you know, it's, it's, if, if the world of soft can be, you know, demonstrated in Tom Clancy novels, you're there for all of the uh, major Tom Clancy novels, right? It's, it's kind of the, you know, it's the rise of soft um, is that era where we start to realize that conventional forces won't solve all the problems and, and we are better off with, smaller, more highly trained units, you know, like Delta. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, and people misinterpret that, uh, and I'm by people, I mean, especially, uh, in the military, uh, you know, I think there's a, a, a then and now a population of more senior leaders who, instead of looking at it, uh, matter of factly and, you know, with complete objectivity, they allow, things like, you know, jealousy and, uh, you know, hey, we, we could have done that or we need to get in on that. And, um, you know, to me, that's not what it's about. Uh, one of the things about the unit is, uh, you know, just what I said to you, I couldn't get in until I had successfully commanded a company. So uh, the fastest you can get to the unit as an officer is about six years. And for a lot of guys, it's about eight, eight to 10 years. Um, and, and, you know, NCOs, same thing. Uh, I think you got to be a staff sergeant to get in and, you know, your record matters. Uh, and, and, you know, what is, what does that mean? It's, it's biologic. Uh, you know, the average age in the unit, uh, when I was there was 32 years old. So, um, there were always guys, you know, older than you in their forties. Um, and, you know, I learned, you know, firsthand, uh, that what a difference that makes, uh, especially going back and forth, you know, to, uh, even the Rangers where they still have, you know, privates and, uh, and E4s and whatnot. Um, you know, age matters and, uh, experience matters. And the age part, you know, is science. Uh, we now know that the male brain doesn't fully develop till we're almost 25 years old. And so if we're lucky. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, think about that. And what, what does that mean? It means the neocortex, the thinking brain doesn't fully develop uh, in size or functionality until you're you know, almost 25 years old. And that's the most important part of our brain. That's, you know, that's what happens to people in combat is the, the negative thing that happens is they panic um, or, you know, they allow their emotional brain to ride herd over their thinking brain. And, uh, you know, it's much, you're, that's for that to happen, it's much more conducive to happening uh, before your brain is developed than after. And so, you know, young guys, it's just much more difficult. Um, you know, the unit, you know, everybody, why they're there. Um, you know, they've, they've been down the long winding road and have gone through many experiences to include combat. Uh, and that wisdom, you know, uh, can't be attained anywhere else. So, um, 
I think that's, you know, that's what people saw. Then the reaction to it, instead of being, you know, what you, what you just stated, uh, was, you know, people going, well, you know, give us a chance, give me the money, give me the, let me get down there and run the show. And it just doesn't work. And, you know, the second part about that is, you know, age and maturity is the first part. But the second part is just the approach to combat. Um, it it always bothered me, even early in my career in the infantry. You know, why do we approach every problem the same way? Why is the answer to every combat mission, you know, a platoon, a company, uh, a battalion, a brigade, a division? It doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, take the mission, understand what you need, understand what you're you're trying to accomplish and then array, allocate and group your forces accordingly. And, you know, that's part of the unit culture uh, to to go down to Columbia. There were no homogenous teams that went down there. It was all one guy from this element, two guys from over here. Um, you know, it was the right type of guys, but just guys from different elements and size it was, you know, you approach every problem with incrementalism. Uh, don't put a hundred guys on the ground if you only need two or 10 or 20. And the way to find that out is to put two on the ground uh, who tell you, you know, we could, we could really use 10. And then once you have 10 on the ground and you're accomplishing some success, you might hear, hey, we, we could use 20. Um, but that's it. And, you know, now, now you're learning to adapt, you know, you're, you're organizing to learn and you're learning how to organize. Uh, and to me, that's not just on, you know, high speed missions like that. That's everything. Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, don't just say we got to get three divisions over there, you know, put some guys on the ground, assess the situation, listen to their recommendation and uh and take it from there i know we have a lot of uh you know a lot of first responders on the civilian side the police and fire and um i believe it's the exact same thing i've worked with a couple of uh, uh police forces here in southern california and uh did some uh work on past active shooting uh situations to to kind of brainstorm you know, what's the best way to to see to those and to approach them? And it's it's the same thing, you know, organize to learn and you'll learn how to organize um, like the military. Uh, you know, a lot of other first responders have taken this uh, top down approach to things. So, you know, if it's an active sh- shooter situation, uh, what you'll hear is the first thing that needs to happen is, we got to get a command post set up. And uh, in a lot of these active shooter incidents, things are happening and they're not able to coordinate because they're trying to set up a command post. And and I believe that what uh, first responders should be taught is first have a way to communicate with other first responders. But when you get on the ground, if it's two two cops and two firemen, they should come together, change frequencies, and start 
developing the situation, figuring out what's needed next. Uh, don't wait till, you know, a command post four blocks away is set up and they have time to talk to you to find out what your recommendation is. We need this kind of self-organizing approach. Um, and it's not because it's some, you know, high speed way. It's because it's common sense. That's the best way for humans to organize, especially when you're dealing with total unpredictability uh, in complexity like you are in an active shooter situation. Well, and I think you've seen that play out, right? Like you look back to Columbine, which was kind of the the watershed event. And the, the big criticism of Columbine was that they set up and waited and waited for the SWAT team to get there. And, uh, you know, we, we saw it repeat in Uvalde. But for the most part, I think the mindset is moving more towards a task force, you know, let's grab a couple of guys and start moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that has been kind of one of the positive effects that, that the soft community has had on law enforcement. You know, there's been, there's always been tech transfer. I, I've, you know, I spent my whole career working on both sides, the, the blue and green side of that equation. And there has always been tech transfer and there's always been tactic transfer. But I think one of the consequences of Iraq and Afghanistan and kind of house to house fighting and the stuff that happened was you saw this more ready engagement between state and local agencies who were teaching military agencies their tactics in an urban environment and then military units going out, developing it, coming back and saying, well, actually, here's the way we were doing it. And I watched the teams that we deal with on both sides change and evolve uh, much more to a, a smaller team, you know, more aggressive, direct action kind of mindset. Yeah. And ironically, um, you know, we got that from from police. Um, in the early part of my career, you know, one of the things that, uh, that, you know, from 911 forward kind of impeded and almost ended was before that to do our urban training, we went to a city and we linked up with the local police department in that city. So, you know, New York, LA, Chicago, uh, Nashville, all these places, and we'd link up with the police. Uh, and they would be kind of our guides to go do our training and they'd be with us. But in the daytime, uh, we did ride alongs with the police. And, you know, that was not for any other purpose than to, uh, get to know each other and to better understand what a, what a, you know, a cop does day to day. And it had a huge effect on a lot of us. And in fact, in, even in Colombia, uh, and we were being micromanaged quite a bit in Colombia. Uh, the headquarters for Colombia was at that time called was Southcom, which was located in Panama. And, you know, there was no this is the 90s. So there was no other, you know, war going on. We were the only show in town. So they, they were trying to get in on everything. And any time we'd have, you know, a uh, just a. a an operation we needed to do to either collect intelligence or to maybe uh, conduct reconnaissance to see if we could, you know, find someone to lead us to the guys we were searching for. To get permission for that was just an unbelievably, uh, you know, difficult thing. And the the answer was always, okay, so you want to, you want to walk in to the vestibule of this apartment. You want to, uh, 
just make sure you understand the locking mechanism on the door. Um, how many, how many guys you got? I'd say three. Wow. That's not enough. You, you need a, you need at least 15 there, a QRF ready to go in case anything happens. And what we constantly were saying in those days, and this went on for many years was, Hey, you know, if two cops see, you know, a guy who's on the most wanted list, and they got a tippies upstairs. They don't wait for the rest of the department or the SWAT team to come. Uh, you know, they're going to go up and check it out. And, you know, there were many examples of that, the way police operate. And, some, and you know, if, if there's six cops, you can isolate a house and you can still go in and clear it. Um, and so we were we took that away from police forces, from our training that, you know, Always try to go with the, you know, always economy of forces is one of your most important things because it equals speed. And, you know, without speed, you got nothing, uh, especially when you're trying to collect intelligence. It's fleeting and waiting around for, you know, 20 more guys is a surefire way to collect no intelligence. So, you know, kind of interesting what you said. I mean, the the. Truth of the matter is we were heavily influenced by the way, uh, you know, your your regular day to day cop uh, and detectives uh, deal with developing situations on the ground in cities all across the U.S. Well, I don't think people understand. I mean, you, you go back to the Munich massacre in 72, and that is when all of the CT units pretty much worldwide, except for maybe two, two SAS um, are born. You know, I mean, Delta, HRT, LAPD, SWAT, you, you know, everybody kind of has their genesis in Munich. And and that evolution was a, an exchange. It was a constant culture exchange between mm -hmm. soft units, military soft units, and state and local special tactics teams, you know, LAPD and Delta, LAPD and DevGrew, LA Sheriff and DevGrew. Um, you know, it, it was for a time there early in my career, that was, there was this constant partnership of somebody would discover something anywhere in the world. And, and it was shared both through the soft community and, and the law enforcement special tactics. So I think that, um, there's a lot that people don't realize that actually was kind of co-development because yeah. in the end, Delta's problem is HRT's problem. It's just in a different place. Um, when it comes to hostage rescue. And, and so I think that one of the roles that certainly the unit has played throughout quietly behind the scenes is, is being a conduit of information um, between state and local and between international foreign forces. Mm -hmm. I agree. So let's, let's move forward. So I, I want to make sure we're covering the book. So you, you wrote, you've written a total of three books, uh, you know, over what the last, 15 years? Uh, yeah, about 15 years. Yep. Um, starting with, uh, you know, the mission, the men and me, which is uh, standard reading in a lot of special tactics units. It's standard reading in a lot of, uh, you know, tactical leadership courses um, and, and reading. I went back and reread that prior to, to you know, this interview. And, and it's funny because you can, when you read the three books, you can see themes that developed early in your career as a young ranger leader, uh, you know, I, I remember distinctly talking about a, a, a long march that you did at, at Fort Lewis 
and laying a foundation that then carries forward into your most recent book. Do you see the three books as kind of one big story arc for lack of a better term? Oh, definitely. And, um, you know, I, I did not set out to write three books. Uh, I didn't even set out to write one. Um, you know, that first, the mission met in me, I left the military in 2006, uh, took a job out here in Southern California in a biotechnology company. Um, and you know, I was out, but all my friends were still in. And of course the global war against terrorists was raging, you know, six to eight, that period. And, you know, it was very frustrating for me because my buddies would be telling me, you know, about what's happening in both Afghanistan and Iraq and kind of the evolution, you know, how uh, in the early days when you, you know, when you read about when I was commanding AFO, there was in the beginning, there was no C2 on the ground. It was just us. We were our own C2. Then it started piling on. And even, you know, while uh, Operation Anaconda was going on in Shahi Coat, uh, it was metastasizing into this, you know, massive, uh, technologically technocentric C2 model. And, uh, you know, so that, that was what was going on six to eight. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe we weren't learning all these amazing lessons that, you know, everyone knew they were very prominent, uh, from 2001 forward. And, uh, you know, in the way the unit teaches you is, you know, don't, uh, don't complain about it. Don't obsess over it, do something about it. And, you know, what I could do at that time was to write a book. And I thought, I'm just going to, I'm going to take these foundational lessons that, you know, I didn't come up with them They're They've been around forever. Uh, I just had the privilege of being in a situation uh, or situations where the application of those principles uh, reveal just how important they are uh, in any leadership environment and just how fundamental they are to the success or failure of any operation. Uh, So, you know, always listen to the guy on the ground. Um, That's one of the first things that happens when, you know, massive C2 infrastructure takes over. Uh, What you're doing is building uh, friction between the guys on the ground and whoever the ultimate decision maker is. And, and, you know, we should be doing the opposite. We should be always, you know, leaders should always be trying to remove friction barriers, remove levels of staff, levels of command that, you know, have to be weaved through to either get permission or to hear what the final uh, decision is on the ground. And so, you know, that's why I wrote that book. It was in, uh, it was because we were not learning these basic lessons. Uh, and, you know, I had, I was in the corporate world. So the ironic thing is, as I'm writing it, um, I'm realizing how they're just as applicable in the civilian world as in, uh, you know, as in the military or any first responder organization. And all the same problems exist, you know, in the corporate world with, uh, 
you know, micromanagement, not listening to the people who, you know, are on the ground. And, and it's not just the person on the ground. It's when you're on the ground, you're dealing with the reality of the situation going on around you. When you're in a, uh, talk, a tactical operation center, a hundred miles away, you know, with a million dollars worth of, uh, of, uh, electronic gear, you are not, that's not the reality of the situation on the ground. You know, it's not cold. You're not hungry. There might not be a guy, you know, lurping up on you right now behind that tree over there. Um, you know, all the things that go into decision-making and problem solving are absent in that environment. And, you know, uh, people get deluded into thinking that, you know, whether it's a view from a predator or uh, some other ISR asset gives them, you know, the this knowledge that's on the ground. And it, it's not. It's just a substitute. It's just a, a way to better understand what they're going through. Um, but it's those guys on the ground. And, uh, and so that's why I real read that or wrote that first book was to, you know, share those basic lessons that, again, I was so privileged to learn, uh, not just from great, uh, leaders above and, and, uh, around me, uh, but also because I had the opportunity to go through these combat situations that prove they work, uh, anytime, any place, um, you know, because they're, they're principles, they're principles based on how the human brain is hardwired, uh, to make decisions and solve problems. Yeah. I think it's interesting because leadership books, you know, obviously I don't think there's any new leadership concepts. Uh, I don't think any of us have discovered anything. I, I kind of look at leadership books the way I look at music, right? There's 12 notes, but every single one of us takes those 12 notes and puts them into something different. And what makes different songs is, your ability to hear those 12 notes in a different order and a different rhythm. And, and I think that, you know, yes, there are, there are certainly a plethora of leadership books, some fantastic, some not so much, but what in the end, what any book on leadership is doing is consolidating the knowledge that you've learned and articulating it in a way that it hopefully relates to a broad audience. I think one of the things that's great about the first book is it does that. And it gives very specific concrete examples that, that, you know, bring home the, the truth of it. I mean, the one thing about, the, you know, there isn't a lot of difference in leadership in the military and in the corporate world, except the consequences are much more apparent and much more violent in the military world. And so I think that it has a way of, of clarifying errors um, that can otherwise be concealed or, or smoothed over in, in, in the corporate world. And, um, you know, as a guy who's been in the corporate world since I was 17, I think reading through, um, mission and me, it, it's a lot of stuff that, that I have learned over the course of 25 years, you know, ground tooth being a perfect example is you, you, you know, the longer you're in a leadership position, the more you begin to realize that yes, you are in a position to gather information from a variety more, you know, more sources than anybody on the ground has, mm -hmm. right? The guy on the ground has one source. You might have a hundred sources, but every single one of those is filtered. And so it is, it is a function of being able to get through the filters. And for me, that means walking through the warehouse for you. That might mean talking to a guy in an airfield. Hey, what are you seeing out there? What's really going on? Um, but, but I think that, that the first book did a great job of, of articulating that in a way that is very relatable 
from from a law enforcement, military, or corporate way. What inspired you when you were done with that? Obviously, some time passes. Why did you decide to write the Common Sense Way? What what drove the second book? Yeah, so you know, I lived that first book. Um, I was uh, my my civilian job in time. I was working in a biotechnology company, uh, great company out here, and uh, you know you see all the same dynamics. Uh, you know, we were squandering opportunities because the, uh, um, you know, exalted senior staff, uh, not just didn't listen to the guys on the ground, never, you know, even had a conversation with them. Uh, and you know, it's kind of the same thing. If you think about, uh, you know, the funny thing about our federal, you know, uh, command and control element, when you hear like these four-star generals talking, there should be a sign above their head that says, I have the least amount of knowledge of what's really going on of anyone here. And we, you know, it's it's a byproduct of the media. You know, we've been led to believe that these are the experts on everything and they're not. Uh, you know, in fact, they're some of the most detached and unknowledgeable people that you can find about specific situations and events. Uh, what's going on right now is a good example in both Ukraine and, uh, and Israel. Um, you know, they do not know. And one of the things we advocated for after 911 is, you know, whoever the president is, someone needs to tell the president that when you really need to make a, a you know, a difficult life or death decision, don't just listen to the PowerPoint slide given to you by a person who got a PowerPoint briefing from someone beneath them who got it from someone beneath them who on and on. You got a little, you know, uh, conference call thing in the middle of the table, hit that and call someone on the ground and, you know, just let them start talking about what they're seeing and what they think. And that's, you know, one of the one of the scientific or the psychological parts of this, you know, or I should say biologic parts of this, most ideas are just flying around in our heads. Most knowledge is just, you know, a non-physical uh, thing that exists in our head. It only becomes, you know, cogent or transferable when we say it out loud. And when we say out say out what we're thinking out loud, we're actually narrating what's happening in our brain. And most of the time we don't have time to do that. So for, you know, one of the, one of the big reasons you always want to get that guy on the ground talking is so they can unload all that tacit knowledge that's in their head, you know, and it's, it's knowledge that has never come together before until they start talking. So, that person is gaining insights as you're asking them the question. But from a decision-making problem-solving perspective, it only makes sense to talk to that person. If you care about making good decisions and really solving problems, then you should know that it doesn't matter who you are. uh, If you're right 50% of the time in your life, that's a pretty good batting average. You bat 500 in Major League Baseball and you're in the Hall of Fame. Um, but you should always be trying to hit that 500 mark and beyond. 
And so tapping into guys on the ground is the way to do that. It's the way to self-correct. It's the way to get, you know, fresh information. And, you know, I, I spoke about, about tacit knowledge. It's so easy to uncork that. All you got to do is ask the question, what's your recommendation? And, you know, suddenly it just starts flying out of the person's mouth and, you know, give them a, give them a few seconds and you're going to hear all the answers as they begin telling you what they know, what they see. Um, and I had an opportunity. Um, I was given a talk to go out, do did another ride along uh, with a uh, police force and they had a uh, domestic dispute uh, hostage barricade situation. And uh, it ended up just as what we were talking about earlier, uh, two of the first couple cops on the scene were the ones up at the breach point. And, uh, you know, no one knew what to do, but you had two cops all the way up at the breach point, which was the back door. And they had been there for like 25 minutes. So they knew the situation and the chief was trying to figure out what to do. And he had, you know, he had a SWAT team saying we can do this. He had the mayor calling him and you know, we had just talked about this and he got on the radio and he said to the guy who was uh, the first guy in the stack next to the door, hey, what's your recommendation? And there was a pause like, wow, you know, I get to actually unload this. And he did. And he, he spoke for about 35 seconds and he just laid out, you know, it was like a salute report. He told you where everything was, what they were armed with what he thought they were going to do, uh, why he thought they could get in through that breach point right now. And if they sent a couple guys to the front door uh, to do a near simultaneous breach that, you know, they'd all be in uh, without any problem and be able to take down the, uh, the perpetrator. And they did. And then afterwards, uh, I wasn't there for their after action, but the chief told me, you know, everyone was coming up to me saying, you know, that was the greatest command and control, uh, you know, I've ever seen. Uh, you were amazing out there. And he told me the only thing I did was ask him, what's your recommendation? And, you know, I learned that, again, because of the privilege of experience. I learned that in uh, during Operation Anaconda when I had three OPs surrounding the battlefield. And, uh, you know, uh different situations. One of them, uh, there were three uh, Al-Qaeda guys within about 40 feet of my guy's position. And it was before H hour, before we were going to uh, initiate the assault. And as these three Al-Qaeda guys stood there, uh, scratching their heads, trying to, you know, figure out what to do next, there were three dots, you know, bouncing all over their head and their, their body. And, uh, my team leader said, you know, told me what was happening. He said, you know, Panther, what, what, what's your guidance? And I just said back to him, what's your recommendation? And he talked through, he said, well, you know, we could drop them right now, but if we shoot them, even with silencers, uh, you know, it's going to make a little noise and those guys aren't going to go back to where they're, whoever is expecting them. Uh, and they're going to come looking for them and realize something happened and we might end up compromising the whole assault. So based on that, if they just keep 
doing what they're doing and head on about their way, then I say we just let them go. And that's what happened. They stood there talking, joking, and about two minutes later, turned around and made their way away in a, in a snowstorm. And so, again, you know, and someone said to me afterwards, hey, that was a great decision. I said, I didn't make any decision. I didn't do anything except ask them, you know, what your recommendation is. And, uh, and you know, I used it throughout my career. That was that was the first, but the first of many, you know, hundreds of times that was that's always my go to question. Um, and, you know, the other thing to remember, and we started this way when I t when I was talking about active shooters, link up with whoever's there, get on the same frequency. Remember, radios are not a way that we talk to commanders and higher headquarters. Radios are the primary way we share knowledge. So when you get one guy on there, you know, talking about what he's seeing and what he thinks, all the other guys are listening too. And this is the second benefit of it. They're able to, they're seeing it from a different perspective. So they're able to pressure test what he's saying and maybe say, yeah, uh, agree with all, except they're actually uh, 200 meters away from the ridge. And there are three more guys, you can't see them. They're behind the rocks right up next to the ridge. Now you're building this incredible like uh, depiction of what's really going on, the reality of the situation, but it's coming from all this tacit knowledge. And, you know, in a cultural perspective, once you start doing that, the guys start getting the hang of it and realizing that they're sharing knowledge every time they get on there. So when they, when something fundamental happens, they realize I need to get on here and so that everybody else knows, you know, the active shooter is turned around. He's now going in the other direction, uh, heading the other way. Um, so really important, but again, just foundational stuff. And uh, so, you know, back to your question, why I, why I wrote the second one, the second one, you know, I was at a biotechnology company. So uh, I, I worked with a lot of regular people and a lot of scientists, and it was there I started uh, for the first time asking the question, you know, what really is common sense? What makes common sense? How, does, how do our brains make sense? And because I had access to uh, the knowledge there, I was able to begin to understand the biologic underpinnings of common sense. And it's, you know, it's pretty straightforward. That's what the second book's about. It's still stories, uh, military and one, one corporate story, but it's about the biologic underpinnings of common sense. Um, you know, to understand what common sense is, uh, you have to understand how we make sense first. And we humans all make sense a common way. Uh, via our senses, sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. Uh, it's the only way we make sense of the world around us. And it's why we all have two eyes, two ears, a nose, a mouth, a brain, and a spine, spinal cord elegantly wrapped in skin. Uh, if we made sense any other way, we'd be another species. So common sense refers to the common way we humans make sense. And that's why 
um, once once it becomes knowledge, once something becomes knowledge, like you know, uh, uh, sunrise, uh, light, warm and safe, sunset, dark, cold and dangerous, that becomes common sense because though that's how we make sense, and over time it becomes common sense, uh, and and once you understand that. You understand uh, it's very helpful today, especially because um, so much of information today that's being uh, transferred and uh, expounded, it doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, and if you're not seeing, hearing or touching it or smelling it, then, you know, you should be skeptical of it especially today, especially with videos, especially with, you know, news reports and whatnot. Uh, but among, you know, each other, it's an incredibly important thing, too, because that's how you explain things. You know, I saw it. I smelt it. You can feel it. Um, and so that second book explains that and explains, you know, why it's so valuable. Um, the other part of that that I think is especially uh, important for first responders is, you know, the simple way to think about the human brain. And it turns out it's not just one brain, it's three brains called the triune brain. And that's the way our brains evolved. Uh, we've got, you know, at the base of our spinal cord, we have our reptilian brains. And that came from when we, you know, were reptiles uh, at, from an evolutionary perspective. And it's still there. And all reptiles, all animals have that reptilian brain. Um, and it's it's a radar. It does only one thing. It detects danger. Uh, so you don't know it's there until something that you're not used to or you don't expect shows up. So uh, your reptilian brain is is why you panic when you're startled. Um, it, it's It's why... Uh, you panic when you get really cold or really hot. And, uh, you know, you have to understand that because you can turn it off when it does that. So the second part of the brain is our emotional brain, and it sits on top of the reptilian. And those are our social emotions. Uh, most of them are positive. The negatives uh, reside in our, in our reptilian brain. But that emotional brain is very powerful. And it's what rides herd on most people today. When you see these crazed people uh, on the news or whatnot, you know, salivating, spitting as they talk, hurling expletives, that's 100% emotional brain. That's That person is not thinking. That person has no idea what's really going on around them. And that's because the part of their brain, the only part of your brain that can understand real-time sensory information is your neocortex. That's why it's called your thinking brain. Uh, your neocortex only engages when you pay attention to something. Uh, and the way you can turn your, uh, your thinking brain on is by taking over. It's the only part of your brain that can take over unconscious processes. So, um, you know, you, you, don't think about breathing. We always breathe. And your reptilian brain is controlling that. That's why if you start, your oxygen gets cut off, you'll feel panic. Your reptilian brain's telling you, hey, 
This is something that could kill you. And, you know, it tells you to panic, but your neocortex is the only part of your body that can take over uh, unconscious processes. So uh, one of the ways to turn on your thinking brain and turn off your emotional brain is to breathe. Um, it's to breathe deeply because the only way you can consciously breathe is by engaging your neocortex. Same thing with speaking. Um, if you speak calm, the only way you can speak calmly is with your neocortex. The other two parts of your brain have no idea how to understand language and no idea how to produce it. The understand part is important, again, for first responders because uh, someone in a riot, you know, a rioter, uh, they're not thinking. They're 100% emotional brain. And when you say to them, hey, knock it off. The, the reptilian brain can't understand language. So they're not listening. They're not hearing what you're saying. Only when you they can somehow snap into their thinking brain can they understand it. And for us, for actual first responders, you know, if you want to understand what's going on around you, you have to engage your neocortex, your thinking brain. You have to stay calm and think. So breathing and talking calmly. When we talk calmly, we calm the way we act. And you can act calm and you will calm the way you act. Uh, so, you know, walking calmly, acting stoically also calms your brain down. But we all, you know, you're, you need your reptilian and emotional brain. So you're going to always feel that, you know, if you're out hunting and hunting deer and you see a deer, you're going to feel your emotional brain kick in and you got to start breathing, uh, to get back to your neocortex to, you know, get that perfect sight picture, uh, and to be able to pull that trigger without any trembling, um, but making sure you're pulling it at the right time. So. You know, the I think, I think that's challenging, though. I mean, you know, as, as you pointed out, the reptilian brain is, you know, earlier in our development, it has more direct access to the systems. And it's, you know, I, I always try to describe it as the reptilian brain it has you running because you hear something scary. And then the neocortex is like, wait a minute, why am I running? Yeah. What did I hear? Uh, but you're running, you know, for most people, you're running before you're asking why you're running. And I think especially, you know, in, in dangerous situations and, you know, emotionally fraught situations, um, you have to teach yourself that I'm going to pause before I run and I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm not going to react violently. I'm not going to react angrily. And especially as a leader, that is a skill that you have to develop and learn not to allow that to hijack, you know, not, not allow the emotional part of your brain to hijack what you say and do. You're right. And uh, it comes with training. The more you do it, the more you automatically shift to your, uh, you know, thinking brain. And, you know, in the book I use, to me, the best example is a bear encounter. Um, you know, you're always going to feel your heart rate's always going to pick up when, you know, a black bear or a grizzly bear uh, pops up on a trail in front of you. But you're trained and you know you immediately begin breathing. You be, immediately begin talking calmly to yourself and you understand your life is on the line here. Uh, and, you know, it, history proves that those who panic around a bear are 
you know, the walking dead. But if you stay calm and think what you've learned in the past, which again, the only way to access that is through your thinking brain, your neocortex, your, you know, uh, reptilian and emotional brain are not going to give you answers. They can't access all your knowledge. They can only access knowledge that was learned under the same emotion. So when you're afraid, you only remember memories of when you were afraid. Uh, but if you switch quickly your neocortex, you're going to remember all the times uh, that you did things based on bravery and based on common sense. And it becomes it becomes an automatic process once you do it a few times in the real world. Uh, so for anyone, that's why, you know, experienced people, you always hear this about, wow, they were so cool, calm and collective. It was like nothing happened. Well, that that comes with time and experience. And uh, that's if you don't correct yourself when it's happening, uh, you're going to lose that ability. And, you know, it's not just at work. You got to do it at home, too. Uh, you know, we're far more likely to get emotional on family members than we are with coworkers or people we don't know. And that's just from familiarity. But if you really want to build that neocortex, that muscle up, you've got to practice it all the time. And that includes at home. And uh, I think you'll find if you do it at home, you're a better, better spouse, better parent you know, uh, all around. And, uh, so it's, it's very simple, but it's, uh, it's a secret to success that, you know, everyone should practice. And, uh, it, it, it's just what we said. If you want to stay alive, you've got to stay calm and think. So it's, it's kind of a, an interesting time to segue because your, your third book, your current book, looks at what happens kind of when the emotional aspect of that takes over and we, we find, you know, toxic leadership and, and, um, you use the Pat Tillman story and your investigation of the Pat Tillman story, um, not only to explain what actually happened there, but also to explain the, the, you know, the underlying mechanisms. How did you first get involved in in uh, the whole Pat Tillman thing, like wh where did you first become aware that maybe the narrative that was out there wasn't totally accurate, and it you know started to get your attention? Yeah, so my my involvement and my knowledge of what happened was evolved. Um, it goes back to two thousand three uh, during the invasion, during the build up to the invasion uh, of Iraq. Uh, we deployed to a forward uh, staging base in the Middle East, the unit. And at the time, I was the unit ops officer. And the unit commander had a brain aneurysm over there. And uh, as soon as he had the aneurysm, I was promotable to colonel at the time. Uh, they frocked me and made me the unit commander. So I took over as commander of the unit uh, for the invasion and everything post-invasion. While uh, we we uh, initiated the Iraq invasion, we were behind uh, enemy lines uh, for 23 or 26 days. Uh, some, some of the guys went back at three, the rest of us 26. Uh, at the end of that, we came back and we set up our base of operations at the Baghdad International Airport. So it was it was 
taken during the famous Thunder Run uh, in the beginning of the war. So we went to Baghdad International Airport. It, it it just we it fit what we needed. We needed to be able to launch missions at a moment's notice as uh, actionable intelligence came in. So it gave us standoff distances, uh, you know, across the runways, but also uh, access to uh, vehicles, helicopters, or just walking out the back gate. And so while I was there, uh, we had a, a raid mission where uh, we took four casualties, which is in the highest number of casualties we had ever taken. Uh, they all injured, but two of them severe, you know, life-changing injuries. Uh, so uh, it was a significant event. Um, my my staff in classic unit fashion was only about five people. Uh, so when the medevac helicopters came in, we had a, uh, a military, a special surgical unit uh, that was co-located with us just for uh, situations like this. So when the med- medevac helicopters came in with the four men on stretchers, uh, about I, only about four of us could run outside and, you know, uh, carry one or two stretchers at a time. As we were struggling, a bunch of rangers uh, ran up to the helicopter and said, you know, we're here to help, sir. And they started helping us get the uh, the stretchers off and bring them into the, the triage area for the uh, JMAW unit. After, you know, we dropped off the uh, patients, one of my guys said, sir, we could have used some of these rangers out there. We were a little light on external security. And I was like, Roger that. Uh, I'll, I'll, you know, put a request in and, and get these guys out for future ops. The night after they helped me in with the stretchers, uh, I was approached by uh, a senior NCO in the 2nd Battalion. And he asked me if if he could talk to me, and I said, "Sure, let's let's go walk and talk along the uh, the uh, runway." And as we walked, he talked and told me about uh, you know this unbelievably toxic leadership climate in the battalion. And his purpose was he was afraid something really bad was going to happen. Uh, he didn't say what that was, but he just said, "You know, nobody trusts the leadership. Uh, we can't. We're not allowed to." do things we know we should be doing to keep our guys alive. You know, instead of doing medical training and zeroing our nods and our lasers, uh, we're standing behind our ponchos at parade rest, hoping that, you know, our canteen cups are clean enough to pass an inspection. So, you know, it was startling to me because, uh, you know, senseless leadership in a combat zone is as deadly serious as it can get. Later that night, I ran into two more uh, uh, senior NCOs from the battalion, and they told me the same thing, along with a bunch of additional uh, examples. So, you know, once an incident, twice a coincidence, three times a pattern, uh, it was pretty obvious what was going on. And it was very obvious to me I had a duty to do something about it. So uh, a night after that, I saw a senior ranger officer, and I approached him uh and said hey you know i i i have some information about uh one of the battalions what's going on in one of the battalions is pretty serious and you know can i can i tell you about it and he's like sure so i very carefully told him the exact same thing that these three guys did 
but he wasn't saying anything. It was dark out. Um, and so I stopped and to see, you know, get some feedback from him. And he just put his finger into my chest. And I knew this guy. We were, you know, had a good relationship. There was no nothing uh, negative between us. And he said, you, you already said you don't know anyone in the chain of command and you're not in the Rangers anymore. Uh, so why don't you tell your anonymous sources to stay in their lanes? And if I had a nickel for every time uh, a disgruntled NCO complained about obeying the orders from his officer, I'd be a rich man. And then he walked away. And uh, I never saw that guy again. Many years later, someone gave me John Krakauer's book on what happened to Pat Tillman. And as I was reading it, uh, I came across he had Pat Tillman's journal and he published some of uh, the things Pat wrote. And so he published what he wrote in Iraq. And uh, in it, you know, he had this one passage. It said, uh, last night, four guys from Delta Force were shot. Uh, I never thought. You know, it, it really brings home the war, something to that effect. Uh, you know, I, I didn't think it was that serious. It just goes to show you. And then his next passage was, uh, you know, we're leaving Iraq at 4.30 tomorrow morning. Thank fucking God. And uh, when I read that, I was like, holy cow. You know, first off, I didn't even know he was in 2nd Ranger Battalion. Um, but I was like, he was there. Uh, he helped, you know, bring my guys in on the stretchers. And so I started talking to, uh, a bunch of senior, uh, NCOs who, you know, I grew up with in, uh, in second Ranger battalion about it. And, um, you know, they started enlightening me to that period of time. You know, I found out from one of them that, uh, Tillman's mom was still investigating everything, Still, you know, she didn't believe what she was told. So uh, I I was put in contact with her and I explained it. And uh, she said to me, you know, and hey, I appreciate it, but I really want to find out what happened in Afghanistan. Um, she knew she had read my book. Uh, so she knew who I was. She knew I had been in the Rangers. She knew I had been in Afghanistan. And she asked me, hey, uh, I have all the investigations. Uh, would you be willing to take a look and let me know what you think? When a Gold Star mom, you know, the mother of a fallen colleague asks you if you can help out and give, uh, give some advice, uh, I don't know that I'm capable of giving any other answer than, of course, uh, and when can I see the documents? So that got me on to the, I drove up there, got the uh, four investigations, paper copies of it, 3,500 pages, pictures, videos, uh, maps, and mostly testimonials from the guys. And I just started immersing myself uh, in what happened and trying to recreate it while also not just tapping into the guys I knew in the battalion, but reaching out to uh, many of these guys who were never allowed to uh, we're never asked follow-on questions. We're never allowed to say, hey, you know, you said this to the investigator. Is is that what happened to you? Is that? And no. Well, that was part of it. That's because he asked the question that way. Here's what else happened. And, you know, I started learning 
all this information. Well, it might be helpful to just kind of set up what the official government narrative was um, immediately following the event and, and why that was called into question. The, the initial take was just, you know, uh, he was killed charging up a hill uh, during an ambush. And uh, we don't know, you know, it was not friendly fire initially. It was just, uh, you know, it was what was written on the Silver Star and the Silver Star was read at his memorial ceremony on, on May 30th. Uh, but the, the unbelievable part of this is, uh, you know, what I found out in, uh, from, from uh, investigating it was they knew uh, beyond a shadow of doubt, he was killed by friendly fire uh, within 24 and then for the higher headquarters, 48 hours for sure after it happened. But they didn't tell Pat's brother who was in the platoon or the family for 35 days. So, you know, they went through this period where, uh, you know, they obviously it's tragic. You can't there's there's no way to to, you know, make, make any positivity out of this situation. Uh, you're devastated by the loss of a loved one, but, you know, finding out 35 days later that he was killed by friendly fire, uh, does nothing but make it, you know, 10 times worse. And the other thing that did was it, you know, made, uh, Pat's mother, Mary Tillman, you know, ask the question, why, why would you come up with such a long, complex story? Uh, you know, why would you lie about it? That was her, her question at the time. And, and, you know, again, back to the science of the human brain, you know, when you've been lied to once, lied to twice, you do not believe anything uh, after that. She never gave up. And, uh, you know, I told you my initial conversations with her, one of the things she said was, you know, if the situation was reversed and it was me that was killed, Pat would never give up until he found out what the truth was. And she, that's what she did. And, uh, you know, in aggregate, it took 19 years to find, uh, to find the truth. But, you know, that's what we found by talking to the guys, putting it back together. And again, just, uh, applying common sense, uh, you know, deductive logic to what happened. Uh, you can, you can better understand, uh, how it happened. And, you know, that's incredibly important for future leaders, for future warriors and leaders. Uh, you know, if we don't learn again, we can never adapt and the same thing will just happen over and over in the future. Uh, so, you know, among, among the, many transgressions of not being completely honest with the family or with the unit itself. Uh, you know, perhaps one of the biggest is you're denying, uh, you know, future warriors, future first responders, the potential to learn from it, to adapt to it and to prevent it from happening again in the future. Yeah. Which literally means that that person was just wasted. You know, it's bad enough that they're killed with friendly fire. If you don't learn anything from it and are destined to repeat it, you've, you've 
almost killed them twice. It, it's it's appalling. Well said. What I mean, obviously, you know, the book goes into great detail, and you did a wonderful job of laying out kind of the circumstances and the details. And I mean, it's the maps, and it's it is it is really fantastically done. In the in the Cliff Notes version, because I really want to talk about kind of the leadership lessons, give me the Cliff Note version. Give our listeners a Cliff Note version of what actually happened and why. What what was the underlying cause of of this this friendly fire incident? So this area that we're going to be talking about uh, is um, Kaust Province, Spara District. It's uh, in the far eastern part of Afghanistan. It's right up against the Pakistani border. Uh, and when I say border, I mean a invisible line that just happens to be on a terrain feature. There's no fences, there's no uh, patrols, there's nothing like that. It's, it's governed by two of uh, the Pashtun tribes who are, uh, you know, some of the oldest Pashtun tribes. They've been there for a thousand years. Uh, they, you know, by trade, they're, they're smugglers and, uh, you know, importer exporters. There's a lot of bandits that go through that area. You know, uh, you've heard the expression, win the hearts and minds. Well, we never, we never use that expression because, uh, you, it's impossible to win the hearts and minds of people unless you live with them and you you stay with them. So a foreign expeditionary force can never win hearts and minds. And it's where we always go wrong talking about winning hearts and minds. The first thing you do is you try to bribe them. You know, you start building stuff and giving them stuff that doesn't win hearts and minds. And again, uh, you can't win the hearts and minds unless you live with someone. But what we did talk about was losing the hearts and minds. You can lose the hearts and minds. And when you do that, you've created enemies uh, where there were no enemies before you lost them. So uh, to put it in perspective, you go back to the first book and, you know, I fought in the Battle of Shahikot, known as Anaconda. That's only eight kilometers away from where, where Pat was killed. And so you couldn't. You could not pick a more dangerous, inhospitable area of Afghanistan. You couldn't pick an area with more daunting terrain uh, than this area. I'm sure there's some that are tied, but no, no more daunting. You know, so it's a volatile area. And these, this platoon of rangers, most of them on their first tour ever in Afghanistan, are land in an airfield, are flown to another airfield, put on vehicles, and they're driving out into this area, you know, three days after they landed. Uh, it's, it's crazy. And they're told to go in there and town by town, search every single house for weapons caches and potential terrorists. And the way you do that is you, you know, break down the door, you toss basically the house you know, you're looking for hidden compartments. Um, it, it's it's a formula for losing the hearts and minds. So this platoon's out in the middle of bad guy country. They're being controlled by uh, what's called a CFT, a cross-functional team, which was a concept uh, put in place by the commanding general 
where every staff looked exactly the same. And the staffs were all 20 men, 10 on each side of a U-shaped table with the commander in the middle, and then a wall of screens up front, uh, usually with video teleconference information and electronic maps, things like that. Um, their day was defined by how many video teleconferences they had. And uh, that, that was a big change in warfare that started with Afghanistan and Iraq, um, war by VTC. And it's, you know, the generals get on there, they pontificate, then their staff officers get on and pontificate. It's actually completely backwards. The only guys who should be pontificating are the low-level guys, and the pontification should flow upwards, but that's not the way they go. They go down. And, uh, you know, a day for a staff officer can have five or six of those, some of them three hours long. Uh, that's their day, that VTC, and it's, you know, various general officers. So you're, you know, you're stuck to your chair and your eyes have got to be forward the whole time. This reflected the first time in my lifetime uh, that I know of, or even in modern military history, where I believe we can look at that moment and say, we went backwards. Uh, if that platoon had been out there during Vietnam, the company commander would have been on a hilltop uh, that was halfway between the, the, the top headquarters and the guys. And he would have had two RTOs with massive antennas. He would have had a small security element and he would have lived on that hilltop until that mission was over. And that platoon would have always had someone who could make a decision, always have someone who could uh, help uh, support them when they needed it. Um, but that wasn't the case here. So off the Rangers go, they realized within a couple days that this was just an exercise in futility. So back to the guys on the ground, if, if someone had come in and said to them, hey, what do you think about this mission? Should we keep doing it? You know, you would have gotten, I think there were uh, 36 guys in the platoon. You would have gotten 36. No, let's get the hell out of here. This is a complete waste of time uh, because they weren't finding anything. They found like a rusted machete, a couple old uh, black powder guns, you know, two AK-47s, and they found a ton of weed, uh, you know, not anything, no intelligence. Uh, they've been out in the field eight days driving around. They're low on water, low on food. That day starts out right on the Pakistani border. They're in a place called Border Control Point 5. It's run by the Afghans, but it's a you know joint American-Afghan outpost. Just a little postage stamp up on a ridge with a helipad and you know uh, probably 20 Afghans manning it. Uh, that was their base of operation. That's where they started on day eight. And they started with one of the Humvees not, uh, you know, not starting. Uh, they couldn't start it. They had, uh, they had 11 vehicles at the time and they were packed into every one of them. So even one vehicle down uh, would affect, you know, the way they were uh, arrayed and allocated uh, as a platoon. But, you know, they worked on this vehicle. Uh, could not fix it. Uh, the platoon leader called back to the rear, said, hey, this thing's deadline. Recommend we leave it here. Uh, you can either send in a, a higher level mechanic uh, or, you know, airlift it out. And the response was, you know, denied. 
tow it along with you. Uh, so, you know, to put that in perspective, like when the platoon leader told that to the guys, they were, you know, the WTF phrase uh, was the first thing out of everyone's mouth. You, you got to be kidding me. And anyone who understood this terrain uh, could never even get the words out of your mouth. Hey, just drag it. And but drag it, they did. Uh, they hooked up nylon straps to it and took off from Border Control Point Five. Uh, four and a half hours later, and uh, six miles later, they were traveling at 1.5 miles an hour. Uh, the vehicle just gave out. Uh, the wheels uh, busted out sideways. The axle broke. Uh, the steering column uh, snapped. Uh, it was completely inoperable, and they were in a little town called Magara. Uh, again, a Stone Age town, about 100 people living in cliffside dwellings. Very friendly as they came out. Uh, you know, there was no hostility. But obviously, you're now surrounded by, you know, 100 plus people around your vehicles. And so the platoon leader did what he, you know, what he should have done. He called back to headquarters and reported, hey, this vehicle now is completely deadlined. Uh, can you get a, um, uh, a CH-47 helicopter in to airlift it out or a wrecker, which is a big tow truck? So when the platoon called in, uh, they were on a VTC. That was their battalion headquarters. For that CFT to make a decision, it had to get permission from the, the CFT in Bagram, which was their regimental headquarters, and the regimental commander was there. And for that one to get permission for, you know, out of the ordinary things, they had to call the CFT that was in a place called Balad, Iraq, with our higher headquarters in it, and get the commanding general to approve it. So you have these massive, you know, staff officer, CFTs, million-dollar talks trying to control these guys uh, conducting a simple operation. And, well, so the first response came a little over one hour later, uh, and the response was, uh, hey, there's no helicopters available, and, um, and, uh, and the wrecker, the tow truck can't leave the Calstagardes Highway, which was 15 kilometers from where they were. Uh, and so the platoon leader, you know, talked to his guys and he came back with, well, how about we blow it? And, uh, you know, they asked to blow it, uh, went through another hour long wait for an answer. What came back was, you know, request denied. You're not allowed to blow vehicles. You need to tow that thing to the highway, to the wrecker. Um, and as if that wasn't bad enough, uh, they were telling them, hey, you're way behind schedule now. You need to get back on schedule. To get back on schedule, we want you to split the platoon in half. And here's how you need to split it. And they told them, you know, mortars need to come back. Snipers need to come back. A couple of these guys, every vehicle is set up you know, with five guys, one guy's on the gun, one guy's the TC, one guy's the driver, two guys got rear security. So when you start breaking up that organic, uh, um, you know, uh, organ the, the way they're organized organically, you're messing up everything they've agreed on, all of their little SOPs they've learned over the days. 
And that's what they did. They tore the guts out of this platoon, split it in half. What you find is the guys did the right thing over and over again. And in this case, the platoon leader did the right thing. He pushed back very diplomatically. And remember, he's a lieutenant. Uh, and he, this is his first time in combat, too. And he pushes back. He says, well, you know, splitting the platoon doesn't make sense. And here's why. And he, you know, firstly, secondly, thirdly, he gave three great reasons. And his first reason was combo. Uh, if we split uh, in this terrain, we probably won't have any combo between us. And if one of us makes contact, we're not going to be able to, the other element's not going to go to, to their uh, assistance. Given the fact that it's almost sundown right now and that we have an SOP that you can't uh, you can't go into a village at nighttime. You have to wait till the morning. It doesn't matter if we get there right now. We can all drive to the highway, take the inoperable Humvee, drop it off, drive back. We'll still have plenty of time to get, catch some winks before sunrise. At sunrise, we'll wake up, clear the village, and uh, be on our way. And, you know, he laid that out to them. Same thing. Okay, I'll get you an answer. VTC still coming on, answer comes back, denied. And he's like, well, why? And there was no why. It was just because you were told to. And so he had enough. He knew when, you know, I can't fight this anymore. And they hired a civilian Jenga truck driver to help tow the Humvee to the KG highway, to the wrecker. So now they're going to drive through a canyon uh, with a dump truck dragging a Humvee that can't be steered. And, uh, you know, so so frustration, anger uh, is, is set in. These guys do what they're supposed to do. They split up the first element with the platoon leader, Pat Tillman. Uh, they're told to get to this town of Mana by sundown. Off they go. The first one bolts out. Uh, comes to the Y intersection outside Magra, takes a left. About five to 10 minutes later, the second element comes out. This is the one towing the Humvee that's supposed to go the highway. They take a right, which is the planned route to the highway. Uh, the first two vehicles go, then the Jenga truck gets that, sees them taking a right and he won't move. Uh, when they go to ask him, hey, what are you doing? Why won't you drive? He said, you can't go that way. Uh, that goes over a 6,950 feet uh, ridge, and it's impossible for even my Jenga truck to get over it, much, much less a Jenga truck towing a Humvee. So they figure, hey, wh which way should we go? And the Jenga truck driver told them same way as your other element went. It's a, the best road, and you'll actually make it there quicker. So they turned around to follow the first element. Unfortunately, when they turned around, the Jenga truck took the lead. So now the Jenga truck with the towed Humvee is in the front of that column. And sure enough, uh, as they turn around, the platoon sergeant's trying to call the platoon leader to tell him this, but they have no comms. Uh, it's uh, negative comms. So he continues moving down behind the first element, unbeknownst to them, uh, on the same route that the first element moved through. Now we come to the culmination. Uh, to get to this town of Mana, you have to go through a slot canyon, uh, which is a canyon cut through the rocks. Uh, in this case, walls 
a thousand fifteen hundred feet high on both sides. The creeks on the bottom. Uh, it's peppered with massive geometrically shaped boulders. Uh, to to watch both sides, your you know your head has to be crooked back all the way. It's very uncomfortable. So this is how they're pulling security while driving over you know uh, the most uneven. Uh, undulating terrain you can imagine uh and so the first element made it through there without any problem uh and they pull up the mana uh you know they're there it's not quite dark yet uh but they there's nothing they can do all they can do is wait until the other element has dropped off the vehicle and comes back but as soon as they pull over they hear boom, boom, two explosions. And those two explosions are either mortar or RPG rounds landing on the side of the canyon wall while the second half of the platoon is driving through. Um, and again, uh, watching the video, paint, it's worth a thousand words. There's many parts in here where you literally have to make hairpin turns left, right, left to get around these boulders. And they're in an ambush and everyone knows in an ambush, your first immediate action is to get out of the ambush. Uh, and they have no way to get out of it because this Jenga truck towing this on is now moving less than 1.5 miles an hour. So you've got a civilian, unvetted civilian speaks another language, you know, who's driving the Jenga truck trying to thread this needle with a Humvee while they're under fire. Uh, after the first two rounds exploded, two more exploded, and then RPG machine gun fire opened up from the ridges. And when that happened, the Rangers in Serial 2 did what the only thing you can do, which is suppress the target. Meanwhile, the guys over by Mana, the platoon leader, Pat Tillman, they're hearing this and, uh, you know, they know something's behind them. They know it's a firefight. Some suspect it's the other half of the platoon. Others have no idea. But the leaders realize, hey, we have no camo and we can't see anything. Let's scoot up to the high ground here. We should be able to see what's happening in the camo and the, the elevation will give us uh, line of sight communication with the other half of the platoon. So uh, one of the squad leaders and the platoon leader grab most of the guys and they head up this, uh, this path. Pat Tillman, who's a team leader at the time, uh, he grabs his guy, his guy and he says, Hey, uh, let's go help. Uh, let's go help our boys and let's go kill some bad guys. And off they move up onto this high ground. So they get up, uh, you know, a thousand feet up on this spur. So a spur is, uh, like a tongue that sticks out from a ridge line. Usually it has a creek on each side of it, but it's a piece of terrain that slopes down uh, like a finger off of a ridge line. That's what a spur is. And they come to the end of the path and they, they are smoked, number one, but they realize uh, we can't see into the canyon from here. And uh, we're not, it's not enabling us to make line of sight communication uh, with the other element. The guys on the spur are under, they were under fire. They saw the, the enemy up on the ridge at first, but a, as they got up to the top, the fire became, you know, just 
thousands and thousands of rounds. The shape of the canyon uh, explains a lot of what was happening. And when you look at the map of the canyon, it's shaped like a, um, a mushroom. The first investigator came to the conclusion that anyone does who reads it, and that's that they were probably getting the crossfire from the other element. So, so the two elements think that they're engaged, and in fact, they're engaging each other? Uh, the guys in the canyon are, are trying to fire at the north, but these are non-gyro stabilized weapons. So, you know, think about driving off road. You're, you're shaking the vehicle. You only need an inch to move the barrel of the weapon an inch over. Now the fire arcs over the hill. What looks like just an inch is, you know, 500 meters once it plays out uh, across the terrain. And so they, they didn't hit any of the guys in Sierra One, but I'm pretty confident many of those rounds were landed behind them. Uh, the guys were hearing the sonic crack of bullets over their head. So, you know, they weren't hitting each other, but the rounds were, were adding to the confusion. So the machine guns in Serial 2, uh, the 50 cal, the 240, uh, the, even the M4 are all at about 150 decibels. Uh, the mortar, the 203, a little bit less, but all of them are over 130, all the way up to 155 decibels. And they, uh, they had, they were exposed to that 150 decibel noise for 12 to 14 minutes. So after 30, they're, minutes, all, they're all effectively deaf. Then they're all effectively deaf. I'm reading all the guys' testimonials, and they're all separate. And as you finish each guy, you're they they go. You know, the investigator always asks them anything else, and these guys would go, "Well, yeah, I was, I couldn't hear anything. I was deaf." after about two minutes. And so I couldn't talk to my squad leader or he couldn't talk to me or we had to pull guys up right up by your face to talk and read lips. So finally, the canyon opens up wide enough where they can pass the Jenga truck and the Humvee. That's at the end of the canyon. Now they're coming out and there's one more sloping ridge as you come out dividing them from where Serial One is on the spur. And unfortunately, when uh, they ran up there, when Pat Tillman and his guy ran up there, an Afghan decided to follow them, one of the Afghan soldiers. While this 10 to 12 minute firefight's going on, they're, they're starting to think, hey, he's drawn enemy fire on us because they are getting fire from both the south and the north. So they're trying to get him back, back here. Come on, using their weapons, their hands. But he won't move. He's standing 10 feet in front of him, firing his AK. So it didn't dawn on them as they realized he was probably drawing enemy fire that he might have the same effect on friendlies. And sure enough, when this lead Humvee with, you know, five guys in it, a 50 cal, a 240, a saw, a 203, M4s with ACOG sights, you know, this thing had as much firepower as, as a full platoon in one vehicle, they come around the corner and the first thing they see is this Afghan and he's firing his AK either right at them or right over their head to the south. And, uh, you know, the squad leader picked up the site in his ACOG site and shot him uh, on the spot. And again, all the guys are deaf, 
And uh, what, what you're trained as an infantryman is when in doubt, shoot where your team leader and squad leader shoots. So when yeah. that squad leader shot the Afghan, they turned their machine guns on that Afghan and 10 feet behind that Afghan was Pat Tillman and that private hiding behind the boulders. Um, now, from their perspective, uh, you know, the only guy, the only account of what happened is from the Ranger private who was with Pat Tillman. You know, they dropped the Afghan and now these guys are under intense machine gun fire and, uh, and they're looking down at these are Humvees on a, in a creek bed, you know, that is mostly tan in color, uh, a few river rocks, but, you know, the, the Humvee sticks out. And so when they saw them, they were like, hey, you know, we're friendlies up here. They were yelling at the top of their lungs, waving to them. Well, these guys are all deaf and they had no way of knowing that. So they're just screaming louder. And, and as they scream, their frustration is rising because it's like, why the fuck, you know, we're yelling and, you know, why, why aren't they hearing us and why aren't they seeing us? Well, it's last light. You don't quite need your nods yet, but you're minutes away. You could actually flip them down, uh, you know, in preparation for darkness, which is coming in minutes. Uh, but from the creek bed looking up, this spur is, you know, you couldn't have asked for better camouflage to hide a bunch of men. It's got a mottled surface, kind of lava, black and brown with massive uh, cracks going from all directions. Uh, no, no, uh, no contiguous shapes on it. Uh, and it's full of foliage. You look up and you can barely see humans on this spur. This is last light. Um, and, you know, they're driving in a Humvee on a rocky creek bed. They're both deaf and blind. They can't see anything. And all they know is this Afghan with a beard and AK was firing at them from the same direction as they've been firing at the whole time. And they opened up. Pat was providing incredible guidance to this, his private, you know, telling him, hey, stay calm. Uh, think, stay focused, which helped this guy to better, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, move his body so that it would stay behind the boulder as the vehicle is, you know, moving out in front of it. Um, so he saved that, you know, that private's life. And then right toward the end, uh, he tried to throw a smoke grenade to give one more signal that it was friendly. And, and when he threw that smoke grenade, it's believed is when he was, he was hit in the head uh, and killed very tragically, right, right at the end, you know, this is now the, you know, 12th or 14th minute of the firefight. And, uh, and, and so, you know, the guys pull up the vehicle, no one knows what happened. No one suspects, you know, uh, from the shooter's perspective, they're, you know, they're, they don't even know why would the rest of our platoon be up on the high ground instead of by their vehicles. Uh, but they start piecing it together and, you know, guys are very honest. They're, uh, you know, soldiers are, will always come to the, you know, the, the reality, the, the realistic conclusion. And they did, they pretty much figured out, you know, that night, the next day that, 
um, that they were shooting right at them. And then as they pulled bullets out of the rocks, the boulders around where Pat was killed, uh, they realized, hey, these are your 50 cal, your 7.62 rounds. And those guys were like, shit, you know, we shot him. Uh, and the platoon headed back. Uh, it was two nights later when they got back to the rear uh, in Kaus. They did their first hot wash. And, you know, it's in the book, but you can, you know, very much be proud of these guys. The, the leaders immediately took responsibility. Uh, you know, if I had, you know, my guy shot where I shot, said the squad leader from the gun jeep. And the guy up top said, you know, Tillman wouldn't have been up there if he hadn't followed my squad up there. Um, so, you know, like, like great leaders, they're taking responsibility. And in the book, I point out there's a big difference between taking responsibility and taking blame. When you take responsibility, you're just acknowledging that you're responsible and you're accountable for everything that happens while you're in a position of leadership. But it's very different from taking the blame. Taking blame means you're saying it was my fault. I did it. Something I did caused it. And of course, you know, they didn't take the blame and they shouldn't have ever taken the blame. They couldn't figure out how the whole thing happened. And as the investigation began unfolding in those days after, they were completely kept in the dark about all the decisions that were made behind the scene and uh, and and why what happened happened uh, on the ground. So, yeah, I mean, at that point, like, the, you know, the, the plane had already crashed, right? Like the, the plane was going to crash, you know, 20 minutes before that. And they just didn't realize that they were on a, a course that was going to lead to this. How, I mean, how, how, from your perspective, how did toxic leadership result in this? Like what was toxic in the leadership chain that caused this to, to, to occur? Yeah, so, you know, toxic leadership, which I explain in depth in the book, um, is, you know, the, the way you understand toxic leaders by the choices that leaders make. So I define leadership as, I define common sense leadership as using common sense to take care of your people by making good decisions and solving complex problems that set the conditions for your people to succeed. Pretty simple. Uh, that's your job as a leader. Uh, all the accoutrement and, you know, glory that comes along with being in a leadership position, the higher pay, the privilege, you know, you get that. But you also better get that you are responsible and that your job is to make good decisions and solve complex problems that enable your people to succeed. And that's where toxic leaders uh, go off the rail. They don't give a shit about the people. They treat everyone with equal derision. They believe that they're always right, uh, that they've earned this position. And by God, you know, I'm, as while I'm in this leadership position, people are going to do what I say or else. Uh, we talked about the three-part brain. Toxic leaders are emotional and reptilian brain uh leaders. That's all they operate off of. Uh, you know, when someone pisses them off, you, you know, or they don't like somebody, 
They don't like their personality. They live that with their decisions. That seeps into the decisions they make. So, you know, if you didn't like this platoon, uh, when they call up and say, hey, this vehicle doesn't work anymore. We're at BCP5. Uh, can we leave it here and you guys come pick it up? It's like, no, I don't like those guys. Um, they're behind schedule. Let's teach them a lesson. And, and I'm just I'm mimicking what the way a toxic leader thinks here. And so send them off. And now they're in Magura and they're still behind schedule. And, oh, it you know, the way they uh, decided to tow it didn't work. And now the thing's completely deadlined and they want, you know, a helicopter or a pickup truck. Hey, let's they're, they're even further behind schedule now. Let's teach them a lesson, you know, and let's make them do this. So you're you're giving orders and making decisions that are the opposite of enabling your people to succeed. And what that translates to on the battlefield or in any, you know, uh, emergency situation is failure of the mission and uh, the inability of the guys to accomplish what you set them out to accomplish. And so, you know, remember, I, I started this, my connection to it was from one year earlier. And for, you know, three NCO, Ranger NCOs to jump across command lines and come over and talk to, you know, the Delta Force commander about their own command. That doesn't ever happen. Range, you can, you know, you can physically torture a Ranger NCO and, you know, you still have to, uh, you know, cajole them or somehow get them to tell you what's bothering them. They just suck up pain. They do not complain. Uh, you know, you admire this. It's a, it's a known trait. Uh, and, and you admire it over time. And so, you know, I didn't start looking into this thinking, you know, this was all the result of, of a toxic leadership environment, but I went into it knowing that that was present. Uh, remember this platoon leader never talked to his company commander. He never talked directly to the battalion commander. He never talked to the S3. He was always talking to a middleman, the XO. So, uh, you know, one of the recommendations you brought up, I put in the end of the book is it needs to be mandatory. We Technology has lulled us into this sense that you can, leaders can send emails or have a staff officer contact you and tell you, hey, you need to change the way you're working, that we need to end that. If you're in a leadership position, you cannot give an order unless you give that order. You've got to say that order out loud to those individuals or there is no order. And you've got to explain the logic of why that order makes sense or there is no order. No more just do it because I said so. And, you know, trust has a lot to do with that. Once you trust someone, you will do, you can take something like, hey, I need you to, you know, run, run down to the end of the canyon right now. If you really trust that guy, you know, you, you might do it, but there was no trust here already. Uh, so in order to do it, they should have had the logic of why it made sense. Denying them the ability to leave a Humvee at a secure base uh, instead of dragging it through the equivalent of the Grand Canyon. You can't make sense of that decision. Then Magara not allowing them to blow this Humvee. It turns out this Humvee wasn't even on their property books. They they found this Humvee 
uh, at Bagram when they arrived. And, you know, from my perspective, uh, you know, now looking 19 years later, we left over 10,000 Humvees in Afghanistan, many of them armored. And we certainly don't seem to think that was much of a big deal or no one's getting upset about leaving those Humvees behind, 10,000 of them. None of these decisions made sense. Splitting the platoon, uh, you know, violates uh, principles or the 10 principles of war. Uh, you never split your forces. And, you know, just the callousness of the way these guys were treated afterwards. Um, you know, Pat Tillman was revered. Like, you know, and I, I don't use that lightly. Um, you know, he validated for, for a young private to see a guy come from the NFL uh, or ha any job where you're making millions of dollars, um, you know, incredible admiration, but it's, you know, it's affirmation too that, hey, what you're doing makes sense. And it's not just the dregs of society out here. Everybody, it's patriots from all walks of life who do it. And after this happened and they came to the realization that they, you know, this was a tragic accident. You can imagine these guys, uh, you know, needed some talking to, some picking up, but instead they did the opposite. They began the scapegoating process right there from day two on that, hey, these guys, you know, not they didn't just cause it. They're not just to blame, but they every phase of this they fucked up in. And, you know, in these original investigations, they lay it right on the platoon leader for, you know, not doing good troop leading procedures, the platoon sergeant for not using the radio more, uh, and then the full the everybody in that front vehicle, uh, you know, it, it states the these guys were yelling to them and they ignored their, you know, verbal warnings. They were waving their arms and they ignored their visual warnings. Uh, we have an SOP. You never shoot at anything you don't positively identify. But as far as I know, no one, including my old unit, uh, back then or even since, does maneuver live fires with friendly and enemy targets. That's what you do in a shooting house or CQB. No one drives around in vehicles, comes around corners, and, you know, you got to shoot on a hill, and three of the paper targets are, you know, women, and three are guys with knives or, you know, or guns. No one does that. So they had never been trained uh, from a motorized perspective to conduct uh targeted discrimination. Uh, but even if they had, you couldn't see anything, uh, you couldn't hear anything. And because and they- the, And the Afghan guys were turning fire at them, right? Like, yeah, I mean, like yeah. it, it's, it's just, they're, they're, they're disoriented. They're auditorily excluded. Uh, you know, it's dark. It, like, it's just, it's one of those things where you look at it and you go, every single thing pointed towards a tragedy. And the the opportunity to avoid it occurred when they should have just blown up the Humvee. You're right. Right. It's it's not it's not the last act that causes the crash. Right. It's always it's always you know you know aviators talk about it as a chain of events, and it's yep. it's you know ten things have to happen for the plane to crash, and in this case the the avoidance you know and and this is why I would encourage people to read your book is. 
you realize like there were, there were a lot of opportunities to avoid this happening, not yes. because you would know that it was coming, but because you know that you're just making bad decisions and, and you're getting feedback from the field saying, Hey, this is a stupid idea. And you know, it's not a good idea to, to schlep a truck around. Oh, it's an even worse idea when the front axle's broken. It's an even worse idea when it's a slot can and you're pulling it with a Jenga truck. Uh, you know, it's just, it, it was, it was, 20 little decisions that led to one catastrophic event um, from a perspective of, of kind of lessons learned. What do you think, you know, you've got a few minutes with, with a, a team leader now to sit down. What do you leave them with? Like what, what is, what is the lasting legacy of this story? You think? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it starts with, with, you know, it's leadership lessons and, it starts with climate, um, you know, back to what we talked about in the very beginning, a climate is emerges from the sum total of choices made throughout this climate system. And you just said it, this event happened not because these guys couldn't discriminate or because the Afghans stood out there. It happened because of the sum total of choices that were made uh, in the 12 to 15 hours before it happened. Uh, and of course, that goes way back. Uh, you could go back the whole year. But specifically on this day, uh, it was the sum total of choices all the way from doing the mission to border control point five uh, to Magara, splitting the platoon, uh, not not monitoring the platoon, uh, you know, at any point. So. Uh, your job as a leader, it comes back to, you know, what do leaders do? And that definition is really important. They take care of their people by using common sense to make good decisions and solve complex problems that set the conditions for their people to succeed, period. It doesn't matter if you're in the military. doesn't matter if you're a civilian first responder. It doesn't matter if you work in the corporate world. That's a leader's job. And, you know, the art of doing that uh, goes in a lot of different directions. Um, one of the most important, I think, that needs to be institutionalized not in, for all first responders is that part about the logic of why. Uh, you cannot give an order without attaching the logic of why it makes sense. And the logic of why comes from your neocortex your thinking brain is the only part of your brain that can produce logic and we all know what it is it's first of all second of all and thirdly uh, if an idea doesn't have three legs to stand on it's probably not standing on solid ground right uh, a tripod will support anything a two-legged stool tips right over and usually the third reason is the hardest and that's because if you can't come up with a third reason, it's telling you what you're thinking probably doesn't make sense. So going through just as a leader, coming up with three reasons that whatever you want them to do makes sense is a check and balance for yourself. It's going to prevent you from making stupid decisions uh, and potentially affecting the, the safety and well-being of your people. Uh, so, you know, decision making, problem solving, um, Go into that logic of why uh, technique, but really just, you know, the title of the book says it all. Common sense leadership matters. Toxic leadership destroys. 
there is no place for toxic leaders. They should be fired from any job that they're found out in. Uh, they do not belong in a leadership position because toxic leadership destroys. And so that would be what I'd tell uh, a new aspiring leader or first responder from this event. Well, and what, what I love about the book and what I love about this is, you know, you've kind of created this, this arc of doctrine um, that, you know, toxic leadership is a very easy thing to think has no consequence. It's very easy to go, oh, yeah, no, those two guys hate each other. Well, that's no big deal. And, you know, yeah, they're, they're both assholes, but, you know, that doesn't really affect the organization. It affects every part of the organization. And, and I think it's easy to sugarcoat it and think that it just means people aren't happy or people don't get along and there's no real world consequence. And I think the, the great thing about this book is that you take a very public event that everybody knows and do a fantastic job of articulating this and give us a concrete example of why we really do need to care and why we really do need to strike, you know, to, to focus on trying to eradicate toxic leadership. So, um, Pete, I, I appreciate all the time you spent with me today. Um, I, I'd like to end these episodes with uh, five rapid fire questions. Um, uh, before we do that though, how can people find your, your work? What is the best way for people to engage with your work? Yeah. Uh, .com. Yeah. I've got a website. Um, you can go there look at all the pictures, you know, of the spur, uh, you can watch video of the Canyon. Uh, you can see all the maps. They're in color of, uh, you know, the platoon's journey. I know, uh, it's a little difficult, uh, explaining it with just words, but if you go on the website, you'll see, uh, and you can play around with it as long as you want. So peeplabor.com and, uh, check it out and let me know what you think. Beautiful. Okay. Let's, uh, let's go with the five rapid fire questions. Short answer, kind of gut reaction. What is your most important habit? Um, Probably just, you know, controlled breathing, uh, understanding the power of breath, how it calms you down, how it optimizes your athletic potential, how it shifts you away from your emotional, non-thinking brain into uh, your logic-based thinking brain where you can, you know, make good decisions and uh, solve those complex problems. What is your favorite current favorite online resource web you know website podcast uh, um you know online resource uh that's that's a tough one uh i you know i go to a bunch of different news try to get my uh you know find the most truthful in there um and then podcasts you know i like the the team house i, I just did that What's the most important characteristic of an effective leader? The ability to make common sense decisions and, uh, and solve problems. It's, it's decision-making, problem-solving. Uh, that's what, to me, leadership is. It's the only litmus. Uh, you can be funny. You can be handsome uh, or pretty or whatever. Uh, nobody cares about that. You know, your job as a leader is to make good decisions and solve those complex problems. And if you can't do that uh, and you don't love doing that, uh, then you probably shouldn't be in a leadership position. What's something you've changed your mind about in the last few years? Probably, you know, 
the whole conspiracy thing. I never thought, uh, you know, I never was a big believer in in what we thought were conspiracies. Now I see that, you know, uh, conspiracies don't have to be explicit. They can just be a bunch of people with a common interest who tacitly agree to collude with each other for that, you know, that self-centered purpose. And I think what we've seen, you know, uh, in our country uh, over these last years uh, has changed the way I think about um, potential for some of these outlandish things to happen and uh, and specifically for uh, our freedoms to be taken away. Last question. What's the most profound memory of your career? Probably, you know, now it's it's this. Uh, the interaction with the Tillman family and with the men of the platoon. Uh, we didn't mention it here, but, uh, you know, there were casualties in the firefight and then the follow-on casualties. I'd never seen uh, such devastation, PTSD devastation, as I uh, saw with the platoon. And here we are 19 years later. Uh, these men are all in the prime of their lives. They're now in their mid and early 40s. Uh, some of them can't work. Uh, at least two, two of them are still battling suicidal thoughts. And uh, most of this came from uh, not being told what really happened, not having access to knowledge. So when I get on the phone with these guys, um, you know, after studying these 3,500 pages, the terrain, putting everything together, you know, each guy would say, wait a minute, have you read any of the investigations? The answer is always no. And then I would go on to tell them what really happened and to tell them, hey, you did nothing wrong. That was not your fault. There's nothing you could have done in that situation. You couldn't see, you couldn't hear, you shot where your squad leader shot. Uh, stop beating yourself up for it. And the reaction from these guys was, you know, like I was giving water to someone crawling out of the desert. Uh, unbelievable gratitude, which, you know, I deflected. I said, you don't owe me any thanks, uh, you know, but the military owes you an apology. Uh, and, you know, the, the government owes you an apology. You were put through the ringer over nothing. And just that, you know, that feedback from the guys and, of course, the family, Mrs. Tillman, uh, especially to me was, uh, you know, if not the most rewarding, the tied for the most rewarding uh, thing I'd ever experienced in my military career. Pete, thank you so much for your service to the country, for your work on leadership and for taking time to sit down with me today on The Debrief. Thanks, John. I enjoyed it. 